This is Retail Retold, the story of how that store ended up in your neighborhood. I'm your host, Chris Ressa, and I invite you to join my conversation with some of the retail industry's biggest influencers. This podcast is brought to you by DLC Management. First, I'd like to thank one of our sponsors, Credit Intel. Knowing the financial health of retailers is crucial for the success of your retail-related business. That's what Credit Intel is for. Credit Intel analyzes the financial health of hundreds of publicly and privately held retailers in different sectors. With a subscription to Credit Intel, you have access to comprehensive analysis of retailers' financial condition and their expert analytics team. Visit creditintel.com for more information. Welcome to Retail Retold, everyone. Today, I am with Zach Mintier. Zach is the Vice President of Real Estate for Five Below, one of the nation's fastest growing retailers. Zach has been with Five Below for 16 years in a real estate capacity. He's a friend. Uh, we've done a lot of business together, and I am excited for him to be on the show. Welcome, Zach. Chris, thank you for having me. It's, a, it's an honor to be on here. And I'm looking forward to talking with you a little bit. I haven't seen you in a little while. This is great. I know. It's been since we had dinner in Philly. That's right. That's right before you told me about your diet that you were on. We'll yes. share that with the group here. I, I am not still doing it, so. <laughs> <laughs> good move, good move. Yeah. So, Zach, tell the audience a little bit more about you, who you are, and what you do. Sure, sure. So, so I'm vice president of real estate at Five Below. Um, been in the real estate department the entire time, but started off as a coordinator uh, as the company was kind of in a startup mode. And you know, lo and behold, here we're sitting at a thousand plus stores. Uh, in my capacity, I oversee new store growth, um, portfolio management, and then also kind of our data analytics around real estate. Um, I am a father of two. I have uh, two boys, a six-year-old and an eight-year-old, uh, and my wife is a teacher. So we've got the joy of 2020 of virtual learning, virtual teaching, virtual working, all wrapped into one, and we survived it and feeling like uh, a lot of sunlight is ahead of us here, looking forward to the rest of 2021 and some hopefully normal environment. Have they made final decisions on schools for the fall? What's going on with your kids? Yeah, they haven't made final decisions yet. They went uh, back in person back in January. Uh, thankfully, it's gone fairly well. So our anticipation is we'll be back in person in the fall. But they, they haven't made any decisions that they've shared uh, with the board, with the teachers or the parents yet. Does your wife teach at the same school your kids go to? No, my wife comes from that background that there's no way on earth that she wants to teach her own kids in school. So she teaches the school district over um, and they have very comparable schedules, which is good, uh, but not exactly the same. But uh, no way that she want to be put in that position to have to teach her own kids someday. Okay. Would you coach your kids? I know your kids do some sports. Would you coach your kids? That's a great question. So my eight-year-old is really getting into soccer right now. And I grew up with soccer background. So I, I didn't think I'd have an itch to coach. Now I'm starting to feel like, okay, maybe an assistant coach. Maybe I'd get that toe in the water for that. Head coach, I don't know, man. With everything going on, I feel like that'd be hard to commit to. But assistant coach, I think I could see that maybe someday. Would your kids like it? That's <laughs> that's a good question. Um 
I don't know. I, I don't know, to be honest with you. I think they would like the idea of it. And then once I was there, I think it's a 50-50. I had enough coaching from my father at home. Having him as a formal coach in any sport, I think, would have been a lot for me. I don't know if I would have. I ended up loving sports. I don't know that I would have enjoyed them as much personally, but that was me. But I know it's 50-50 with kids. Like, do they want their parents to coach or not? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Hey, Chris, am I allowed to share a story here real quick? Yeah, do it. All right. So do you, do you remember the first time you and I met? Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm usually pretty good with memory. Oh, my God. <laughs> I go. I don't go. All right. I was thinking about it before coming on here. So we met uh, back in 2000, I think, five. It was at the Philadelphia ICSC at the Hard Rock Cafe. And you were at Sherwin-Williams. I had just getting started at Five Below. And I remember us talking there, meeting there. Yep. And I, I've shared that story with others in the past, admittedly to you, because I just find it fascinating in our business. Like, you don't know those type of opportunities when you meet somebody, particularly when you're young in the business, where that individual might go, where you might meet up with them later. And like, yeah, like yourself, hosting the podcast here, COO over at DLC, and I just remember meeting there when we were both trying to figure out what, what are we doing? What is this industry? It seems great. We're at a party. People are talking. It's hard rock. I think we're in the right spot, but what are we going to do? That's incredible. I appreciate you sharing it. And look, look at you. This is a really cool story. And uh, I really appreciate you sharing that. It's awesome. I remember going there at that, at that event. That's really cool. Okay. I want to bring us to section we call clear the air. Get to know Zach a little bit. All right. I got three questions for you. Here we go. Question one. What is one skill you don't possess, but wish you did? I would say small talk. I, I am, I am not skilled at small talk. So I, I wish I had that natural ability to do it in business. Private life. I wish I could sing. Okay. Terrible singer. Terrible singer. I have no, I am not musically inclined at all. So I hear you there. Question two. When is the last time you tried something for the first time? Uh, I have not been too adventurous lately. I feel like the confines of home have tempered my adventure. Um, I think the last thing I remember having new was an oat milk creamer. That was a big change for me about a month ago. Um, it worked out great, Chris. I'm saving 10 calories each morning now. <laughs> so it's been a big win. Is it, does, what does that taste like? It actually does taste like normal cream. They did a really good job. But I think I, 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 you know, I went with the French vanilla. I think maybe that's the key. I can't stand behind all the other flavors. But French vanilla oat milk. Okay. You're good. All right. I'll have to give it a whirl. Last question. What is one thing most people agree with, but you do not? That Tom Brady is the goat. No. That, that's Whoa. <laughs> I do agree with that. I do think Tom Brady's the goat. Why not? How much time do we have? I don't think we have enough time to cover it, but um, I don't know. I, I'll just start with Jerry Rice maybe is, is uh, my argument against it, but he's a great player, but that would be the one that would be the one that uh, I don't think I can quite agree with. Wow. Fascinating. I, I be thought, a Patriots hater. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. But I, I think this year he kind of dispelled a lot. I mean, if for all those people who thought he was a system guy, Belichick system, he changed it up. 
Anyway, but that's a great answer. That is a great answer. Okay. I appreciate doing that. I want to get a little bit of business. You guys are growing, but obviously we had a tough year last year. High level question. What's your take on what's going on in the marketplace today? What are you seeing? Yeah, it's been, it's been an interesting beginning to 2021. Um, you know, I think we were feeling like the retail environment would be a little bit slower, the rebound uh, as we like entered the fall of 2020. Uh, and I would say we've been a little bit impressed at the rebound that we're seeing, um, not just with our stores, but just with some of our peers. Um, it feels like it's just coming back a little bit quicker than uh, we would have anticipated, which, which I think is a positive for retail. Um, and it's those that emerge stronger feel like they're now starting to get back on the offense, uh, yeah. maybe a little bit quicker than um, certainly we would have thought uh, as we were in late 2020. Yeah, it feels a lot of things are ripping right now in a good way. I, I guess the consumer is so strong right now, it's and they pent up demand. They want to get out of the house and spend money. It's really, really interesting. Yeah, I think the stimulus checks, I think, have helped. Uh, certainly, we're a value retailer. I think, you know, we saw that at the end of our Q4, a lot of spending in January, and it seems like it's kind of carried momentum. How's it been on the uh, leasing activity side? So leasing activity... You know, a lot of the REITs in all asset classes just reported and a lot of them said record leasing. If you look back, I don't know that it's number of deals record leasing, but it seems like in square footage leased and NOI and other things and number of deals is equivalent to past years. It looks like in our portfolio, we had one of the highest occupancy gains in any quarter this Q1 comparatively. Uh, leasing activity is really, really strong. I think the entrepreneur has taken a little bit time to come back, but those who are well capitalized yeah. are trying to, you know, one of the things I keep talking to retailers, they want stores open to capture this pent up demand, right? And there's a lot of people who want it now, right? You know, can you deliver to me in 30 days? And I'm like, yeah. you know, that because they, they, I think there's pressure to get the doors open from the C-suites at retailers because they want to capture sales. And given the pent up demand, you know, don't know how long it lasts. I think this is, I think this is a long, this is a tailwind for, it's going to roar for quite a bit of time, but Leasing activity is strong. I would tell you, obviously, right now, construction costs are really concerning, and that could play a role in leasing activity soon. I think retailers and landlords are going to have to get partner and collaborate here to try to make things work because it's it's pretty wild what's going on in construction costs. Yeah, we're, we're certainly seeing that on our, our side as well. And a lot of conversations with some of the smaller, um, more independent landlords out there, um, I, I would say the last six Six months have turned very much into trying to problem solve together. I mean, we're, we're trying to be proactive with it, but uh, navigating the construction cost increases is, um, is certainly becoming a little bit more of a, a headwind for both sides of the table. Yeah, I think it's an acute problem. It will go away, but it's not going away tomorrow. It's going to be here for a little while. And, you know, whether that's trying to keep things, some things in existing places, you know, changing some, you know, wh where we would try to get brand standard, maybe foregoing on a couple of things. Otherwise, it's going to be a challenge to get deals done. So we'll see how that goes. I think that there is definitely 
concern on both ends on construction costs. And hopefully that works itself out. It's interesting the reasons why you hear all these things, but construction costs rationalizing are going to be critical for everybody. And, you know, the housing market clearly playing a huge part in this, right? Housing market on fire. But if I were to tell you a headwind that I'm, that is acute and I'm paying attention to like white on rice, it's not necessarily demand for space. It's, you know, how do we get collaborative to make the deal? Because the construction costs are really, really concerning. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So anything else going on you're seeing in the retail world or real estate world that you think is interesting? Yeah. You know what? I think it's interesting that, um, you know, a lot of things going into the pandemic, it felt like they were going to accelerate the demise of certain categories or certain retailers. And, and it did for some, but I, I've been encouraged as just a fellow retailer to see some other brands seemingly emerge through this in a better position than they were coming out of it. So I, I found that interesting that that's, that's kind of occurred, but it seems like those that rode the wave through it, um, I think are just well positioned here to hopefully take advantage of the headwinds through 2021. And and I'm kind of hopeful that 2022, 2023 feels a little bit more natural of a retail climate growth, maybe is back a little bit more with retailers development. If the construction costs can get under control, feel like 22, 23, maybe redevelopment or more in line, but just curious to see your, your kind of thoughts you know, outward there too, from some yeah. of the retailers that emerged through this. Yeah. I'll give you one that I think was interesting, right? Joanne stores, right? Joanne stores, you know, for a while owned by private equity. And I think people were wondering what they were going to do. And then if you look at their, like when they went to, they went to IPO sales soared, they pivoted to buy online, pick up and store just as well as anybody huge omni-channel presence. And we learned some good facts, like they sell more sewing machines than anyone in America and things like this. And, you know, that was a retailer that I think has been energized. And to your point, there was some that it affected negatively, but there was some that the pandemic energized, notwithstanding, we know the ones like grocers and the, the essential retailers that didn't have to close, right? Those, sure. But I don't think pre-pandemic people saw an IPO out of Joanne, you know, growth was there. And then here we go. And there's, there's a lot of stories like that. And that was one specific one that I was like really encouraged by. Well, I, I would tell you, at least from the, you know, from the five below lens, and I think a lot of retailers by navigating through the, the shutdowns and then the restrictions, um, it probably moved up our timeline on certain initiatives by, I don't know, maybe two years, you know, buy online, pick up in stores is something that's we're trying to make a reality. Curbside pickup, we kind of had to do it overnight after our, our chain reopened. And it was in like the roadmap to test a year later. And we just had to do it across the chain quickly. Um, I think it made a lot of retailers, hopefully, probably smarter and more well-equipped quicker to have navigated where the customer was already going that they just got sped up to with the shutdown. So there is some silver lining. I certainly think for those that have navigated through. Yeah, for sure. One last thing that I'm curious about, and I know not necessarily your expertise, but I know you're very plugged into all aspects. A lot of talk about the supply chain of goods in America, 
And how are you seeing getting goods to the store? As I hear a lot of different things, and I have been to some stores where shelves felt light for certain retailers. And are you guys, have you guys figured that out, worked your way through, or is just everyone going through growing pains with this? I think everyone that is getting any um, of their uh, imports coming in are, are really struggling. And with the amount of, um, if, you, if you were to go into Los Angeles right now, go down to the port of Long Beach, it, it's kind of fascinating what's been playing out there with, with all the uh, shipments getting backed up, backed up, backed up. And it just is impacting the entire, I think, retail industry and the supply chain. And it doesn't seem like it will kind of quickly come back. So I think everyone has been pivoting, trying to find alternative routes for those shipments they may be getting. And they're also probably doubling down on finding other other suppliers that can kind of offset some of the shortfalls. So I think every retailer is dealing with it. I think some probably have good ways to navigate it, but it's still impacting to some degree across and and hopefully i think the feeling is as we navigate through the year it will you know recede back to normal but the demand is so high the backup is what it is that it, it is a unique confluence of issues that i think is impacting you know retail that hopefully is getting offset a bit by again the spending you know habits that are out there by consumers that want to get back in stores want to spend that may have been uh, you know not doing that obviously in 2020 it's a good perspective. Interesting because I know one of the punchlines, the retail industry was talking to Wall Street that one of the things that that was telling Wall Street all the time that really they were focused on was this inventory control and not getting and making sure they managed their goods so well and they could have strong inventory turn. And then now you have to buy so far in advance to make sure you have the goods. It, it's kind of, you know, going in reverse to what that, that theory was pre pandemic. And I think that the inventory discipline will come back, yeah. but right now it feels hard to be able to do that and get the goods in the store. Yeah. I, I think it will, I think it will recede back to normal, but yeah, you gotta, you gotta be forward thinking out there with your orders to stay in supply which does run counter to that kind of that run the lean balance on the inventory. But I do think it'll receive back to normal here. Yeah. Okay. Well, that was a great little business segment there. Really appreciate your insights. I think the audience did as well. You have a story for us down in town, Pennsylvania. I do. I do have a story to share. And I, and I, I kind of want to caveat that the actual deal I feel like is, is not overly unique or overly interesting, but I felt like it was one to share, Chris, because it actually is, in my mind, actually a real turning point in Five Below company history. Uh, and also, I met it as a special place in my kind of career development as well. So that's why I wanted to share how Five Below ended up in Downingtown, Pennsylvania. Let's, let's hear it. All right. So if I can give you a little background to help paint a perspective. So Five Below was founded and opened its first store in October of 2002. In 2005, at the beginning of the year, there was 23 stores in the chain at Five Below. The plan in 2005 was to open 23 more stores, so the double the store count in one year, which would have been three more than the previous two years alone. So big ambition. And I joined the company 
luckily from a career development in March of 2005. So I joined as they had already kind of put pen to paper on the 23 locations and we were going to go about doubling the store chain in one year. And what ended up happening in 2005, and, and we were really still very much in startup mode. We opened the stores, but as we opened them at a clip that we had never handled before, we started to feel pain through the organization. We felt it in supply chain, we felt it in operations, we felt it in marketing, construction, IT, you, you name it, we stress the organization by that quick of growth. So we, we did get the 23 stores open, but we entered the holiday period in 2005 in a position of weakness with challenges and headwinds. We did something that I have found from others that have joined the organization and hearing some of the stories at that time, haven't seen other leaders do. Our co-founders, David Slusher and Tom Bellios, they put a pause. We, we got to December of 2005, we had got the stores open and we were feeling the pain and our co-founders basically said, things are not working. We've got to slow down what our plans are in 2006 and we've got to just reevaluate the concept, the way we uh, distribute, the way we operate. I was just green at the time. So I was just kind of a little bit along for the ride at that point. I was a real estate coordinator. Um, I, I was one of like 15 or 16 employees. I was doing really entry level stuff. So I don't think I understood what was going on uh, mid to you, Chris. Sure. But we took the time as an organization to just slow everything down. And we spent December, January, and February just reevaluating how Five Below operated, what we thought the size of the store should be, what we thought um, you know the customer really wanted, and we even brought in a brand designer. Her, her name was Adrienne Weiss, and she had worked early on with our co-founders with the initial concept of Five Below, and she'd done great work with like Build a Bear and a few other national brands. And at the time we were operating units that were four to 5,000 square feet. And we took this two or three month period where we just kind of shut everything down, except for we had three stores that were already on the books that were planned to open in 2006 early. And they were all four to 5,000 square feet. And, and we took this pause, evaluated the concept and we decided to do a bunch of different things. One of them was to grow the store size and double. We felt four to 5,000 square feet. We have all this great merchandise, hard for the customer to navigate, claustrophobic. We felt we could get deeper with our product offerings. So, so we paused, we came up with a new design that would be much sharper, brighter, new graphics, new lights we go from four to 5,000 to 9,000 square feet and, and double the size kind of overnight of our footprint. Wow. So we went through that, came out of it. And at that same time, I had been getting further responsibilities um, and was kind of put in a position of, I, I would call it a junior deal maker. 
if you will. We had a director that left. They decided not to backfill the position and they gave me some additional responsibilities, including starting to take on like a little bit of a region in greater Philly. It was right around November, December, January, where we took this pausing effort. So we came out of it in January with the new prototype, 9,000 square feet, had all these great conceptual renderings of how the store was gonna look, the store of the future. Now we had to go get to the location. All right, so now the pressure was on. <laughs> we gotta find a location. We gotta do this 9,000 square foot store. It's January of 2006, and we're gonna get this thing open by you know, October so we can get it in, get it open, and test it before the holiday in 2006. So that brings me to Downingtown. So I was tasked and I had great mentorship and support um, from my boss, who was, who was Michael Levin, who was our EVP of uh, almost everything. We were a small organization. <laughs> he was EVP of real estate operations, HR, IT, <laughs> construction, legal. I'm probably forgetting a, you know, a title that he had. But he was my first mentor, and he's the one that gave me confidence in the responsibilities, and he helped shape you know, a lot of my career, but he also had to deliver this store, and he had to try to count on me to help deliver this store. So we were given parameters by our founders. This lo first test location had to open before the holiday, it had to obviously be in that 9,000 square foot range. It needed to be in greater Philly where we had some brand recognition. Most of our stores at that time were within five states, but primarily around Philly. So it needed to be in that general vicinity. And we needed to find a deal where if it didn't work, we could get out in two years of a oh two-year early termination. Oh, boy. But the landlord would have to deliver it in a full vanilla box and do all, do all the work. Oh boy. You would love to see that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that, those were our parameters. Um, so I, I was working at the time and he still works with us with a great market broker, uh, Rick Shook. He was, he was at Fameco at the time and he was really given a lot of the, a lot of the uh, direction to go, all right, here are the parameters. We know the markets we want to be in Philly. We know the centers we like. You get you. We got to go find a location, and a location was put in front of us in, in Downingtown, which is um, you know about thirty miles west of, of Philadelphia, suburb, high growth suburb at the time, good moderate to high affluency mixed in, um, and it was where we wanted to land, ultimately, but. Our challenge or my challenge began with a big project that was three miles east in Exton, PA, where our co-founders felt that really needed to be our landing spot to service the entire kind of Exton Downingtown. Is that the Whole Foods, the Whole Foods pre-project over there, around there? It's a, it was a, it's a Wolfs, it was Wolfson Verrecci at the time, licensed there with uh, Barnes and Noble, grocery store there, um, Old Navy, 
Um, I'm forgetting a couple other retailers, really nice looking shopping center. It was really when lifestyle centers of that size and a market like that were, were, were generally perceived as like the, you know, the class shopping center to be in. And we were still trying to figure out who our co-tenants were that we felt like the best synergy. And we actually felt Barnes and Noble at the time was one of our, our best co-tenants. And they were in that main street at Exton project that we wanted to be in. So the first part was trying to one convince myself that I could stand behind Downingtown and the shopping center we were looking at was called Brandywine Square owned by Allied Properties out of Wilmington, Delaware, located um, just off of uh, Route 30 on Business Route 30, Lancaster Avenue. Uh, really good regional access. It was a 600,000 square foot uh, L-shaped power center with uh, Wegmans, which was at the time the only Wegmans within the greater Philadelphia market. So that was a unique component. And it had Dick's Sporting Goods, uh, DSW, PetSmart, uh, BJ's Wholesale, uh, Regal Cinemas, and the trifecta of Steinmart, AC Moore, and Linens and Things. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So it was a, it was really well co-tenanted shopping center, but our, our founders really felt we want to be three miles east the next day. But we had this opportunity. It was 14,000 square feet. It was sitting uh, two small shops off from the door of Wegmans and then one small shop door off from Linens and Things. So it was in pretty good location within the project, but it was 14,000, which was, was a challenge. Um, and ultimately it was, again, it wasn't the center we wanted to be in. But when you're given a deadline, you're in January and the store has got to open in September, October, you don't have a lot of time. Right. Yeah, totally. You really don't. So we spent, a, I don't know how many visits we made out there and myself included, just made visit after visit out there at different times of the day, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, seeing it on a Saturday to feel how the activity, how the traffic is, you know, try to come up to a point that we felt like, okay, we can land here and do the same amount of business as if we landed in this other project, you know, three miles to the east. Yep. And we ultimately did get our co-founders on board with that, with the idea of landing there. And it really was Wegmans. Wegmans was the key that we felt that is going to draw the customer, whether they're in Downingtown or Exton, they're going to, they're going to come to the shopping center, the shop Wegmans. We're going to be in close vicinity to them. Totally. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. We can make this work. Well, now we had to get a deal though. <laughs> so Allied Properties, who we have stores with today, we actually had done a deal with them in 2005. So we had a pre-existing deal uh, but, you know, they're tough negotiators. They're, they're good group. They're fair. But, you know, they, they, they drive a hard bargain. So one of the biggest challenges we had, and you've probably faced this over and over, but from the retailer side, hey, give us 9,000 feet. We, we don't want 14,000 square feet. <laughs> Just chop that box up. Give us 9,000 square feet. Can we move forward? <laughs> right? <laughs> 
And uh, they at first did not, uh, they, they did not think that that's the direction they wanted to go. Um, it, it, was, it was operated by Chester County Bookstore. They wanted to terminate, but they didn't have a right to. So that was another obstacle. Oh my God, and you have a timing issue. Oh my God. We have a timing issue there as well. So we had to try to convince Allied Properties to go about doing a termination, recapture, and then split. While the biggest issue for them, they didn't have another tenant lined up to take the, I think, 4,700 square feet yep. you know, left. Yep. That was a challenge. So ultimately, we met with them multiple times, numerous calls. We got them to see conceptual renderings. We tried to get them to buy into what this concept was going to look like. Because they had our existing store we opened a year ago in, in uh, Christiana, Delaware. So we tried to just get them on board with selling here's what we're going to do. We're going to, you're going to have the very first, you know, new prototype five below double the size, more merchandise offerings, better quality, better look. This thing's going to be a home run. That that's what we were trying to sell them. But we need that two year kick out. That was, that was the biggest challenge we had to try to sell. You know? yep. It's a tough one. It, it, it's, it was a very tough one. Um, we were able to, show them what we were going to invest in the store, what we were going to do with the store, you know, what we were going to, as a company, take risk in ourselves to put in. And I think I learned something in that, that deal ultimately that helped me later is sometimes there's going to be risk on both sides, but you got to do a good enough job. I think to try to paint the picture to the other partner that, we're taking on just as much risk as you like, this can be a, a, a win-win scenario. And if we lose, we're perhaps we're kind of losing together. Totally. So great lesson. Yeah. And that's what we tried to try to get them on board. And, and we ultimately did we, by sharing kind of what the costs are going to be, how quick we were going to move on this store, then they would be a little bit minimized on their downtime from terminating the Chester County bookstore. We got them on board with doing 9,300 square feet. We finalized an LOI and we were ready to bring it to our real estate committee in, uh, I think it was April of 2006. That was one big hurdle to climb. We did bring it into our committee. We got approval. Our next big challenge with Allied Properties was we've got to get a lease done in 30 days. You've got to deliver the space in August. Only way we can open and operate it in October. It was, a, it was a big challenge. We also learned at that time we needed to meet in person on leases sometimes to get stuff done. Yeah. So we, we did an old school kind of playbook and had, we met with them in person. We did a bunch of calls, some things that we really weren't doing at that time to facilitate getting leases done. And they moved as fast as we did. We, we got the lease done in 30 days. We got everything ready. And what it really turned into then was just a race to how do we get this delivered within 75 days? 
and then get the store open. Wow. When did they get the Chester books out? I, I believe they got them out. Um, I want to say it was around probably May, you know, wow. May of May's timeframe that they were able to get them out. It was, thankfully, they were able to secure a pretty quick recapture. Wow. Did they get them out before the lease was signed with you? I believe they did. I believe they ended up taking it. You know, we were conforming our lease off a prior one, which also helped to make that lease process go quickly, which made a difference. Yeah. Wow. That's an incredible story. Is the store still there today? Yeah. So why, why it holds a special place is we got the store open on time after numerous, numerous iterations internally, like we were there with the entire executive leadership team, multiple visits, changing fixtures, changing graphics, changing lights. I mean, we wanted to get everything right. We got it open October 2nd, 2006. And we had the majority of our corporate office was there, which, which was not big at the time, admittedly. And for Five Below, we used to do at our grand openings, Five cent hot dog cart, which was a big draw, lunchtime, so yeah. Friday and Saturday. We had that there. We had gotten the word out, you know, with the newspapers and, and a little bit of radio that this was going to be the newest, biggest, and, you know, best five below you've ever seen come out and see it because there was customers within the general Philly area that certainly knew us. And, uh, and I remember pulling up that morning and we had a line of people you know, waiting to, to get into the store. Good for you. Which is always a great sign. Yeah. And we also had to help drive traffic. I, I remember we always had like a doorbuster item and we had the fog commander, which was a smoke fog party, you know? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Five bucks, which I think at that time was probably like $30 or more anywhere else to get in and uh, we had that there open hugely successfully. Customers were there, big crowd. The feedback was you know, tremendous. A lot of customers giving comments of, wow, I can't believe this is the same five below that I'm used to shopping Yeah, within there. And we ultimately opened two more stores in that same prototype in um, November of that year. And it was very successful in that holiday and it changed the direction of five below. We decided this is the prototype. We got to be bigger. We got to be at this footprint. We've got to have the look. And it, it really became the foundation wow. that we had to move forward with, you know, there, but at the time it felt, felt like a, a big risk, just doubling an occupancy with nothing to base that we would do the sales to have it make sense to do. Wow. That is an incredible, incredible story. One of the best ones I've heard on the show. That was, that was amazing. Now a message from one of our sponsors. Our friends at ESEN Group offer true national facility services. Their professional staff and elite service partners are in place and currently serve all areas of the United States. Additionally, ESEN Group's current coverage extends to rural communities, areas that other service companies often overlook. With a multi-service platform that includes all of the basic property maintenance services, such as landscaping, snow removal, and janitorial, East End Group also includes more than 25 additional services, such as plumbing, electrical, and mechanical. East End Group takes pride in its work and uses state-of-the-art technologies 
to report conditions with pictures and timestamps in real time, giving you peace of mind that the work is being performed as requested. Visit esendgroup.net to learn more. I got a million questions, but I'll ask a few. So I didn't realize you were you were at Five Below at employee 16. It was 16 or 18. I've never got it defined, so I'm, I'm somewhere in that range. How many employees does Five Below have now? Corporate office, I think we're like 450 or so. Wow. Wow. So what was it like? What's it like now? You guys are a public company. You were a startup. You hear about all these stories of these tech companies, these door dashes of the world that were 14 employees and now the you know public entities and from startup and you, you hear it all being tech, 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 tech. You were in the startup phase of five below in the early 2000s. And here you guys are still a very successful retailer and still growing. What was that? What, what's it been like, the changes at Five Below? Yeah, I know, I, it's like a blur, which sounds weird because it's been you know 16 years, but we've been moving at such a fast pace really since 2008. We kind of ironed it out, the prototype with, with Downingtown is the beginning. And we applied and opened, I think, about 12 stores the following year. They were very successful. So we got more investors that came on board, which is interesting as a startup when you have those rounds to get additional investors in. And those are like lifeblood, you know, to get that to keep propelling growth. And we just kept moving so fast that I felt like I woke up, Chris, in 2012. We were saying, hey, guess what? We're, we're going to work to go public. And, and it's, it's interesting to be in a startup where obviously you're very lean and mean and everyone's wearing like eight, eight, 10 hats. You, ha- you kind of have to. I would say if you're in a successful startup and you go through the experience, it's amazing to, to do because you have to be um, you have to multitask. You have to be accepting of just wearing whatever hat and jumping into it. And it was unique because you get to learn everything, no matter what role I think you are as a startup, you probably get good visibility to like everything going on within the organization, which is great for your career. And that's one of the things that's interesting when you go public then is you're going bigger, obviously the information, you can only provide it to certain groups when you're public, obviously a lot more, uh, you know, guardrails and, and SOX compliance and so forth. So it, it's kind of interesting to have all this visibility, everything going on and your hands are in everything. And then when you go, you know, public, you're a larger company, you do have to start working on a little bit more specialization, visibility to certain things become, you know, a little bit more limited. So you go through that experience of seeing everything to maybe then visibility is less. And, but it, it's interesting then you go from one office to the next office that's larger. And all of a sudden, I, I don't know, you wake up and you've got four times the workforce. And you used to know everybody too, right? Yeah. So everybody in the office and everything's there. So you kind of get used to wiring to yourself to realize that you're only going to get to probably know a lot of your most frequent collaborators, which maybe doesn't sound that big to those that are you know used to a larger company, but it is for if you've been just with a small company, 
in a startup to see that transpire where, you know, you just don't get to know everyone on an intimate level. So that's an interesting change, but you know, on the, the other side of the table though, um, I think cult culture, at least from the five below lens would be one thing that I, I would say, if your company can kind of keep your culture in place in some foundational manner through a startup to be in, you know, a public chain, I think that means you're probably going to turn into those success stories that that is a company that can kind of continue to grow, stay what they really are. We've thankfully been able to do that. That's part of the reason I've been here so long, but I, it's not easy. And I think the leadership is the key. I, I have found out if you have your right leaders that can kind of keep, keep that culture intact, keep it at the forefront. Uh, boy, I think it makes a difference keeping a company operating in a similar manner, even if, they're now a public company with thousand more stores than they had, you know, in the early days. Wow. That is truly insightful. Are there some of these people there that were there are still at five below that were there when you were in the beginning? There, there's a, there's a small group of us there. Um, you know, I, I noted earlier, two co-founders were, were David Slusher and Tom Bellios and uh, Tom is still our executive chairman on the board. So, you know, Tom is still there in that capacity. And, and we probably have about five or six individuals that are still uh, still around from that time, including our CFO, who's, who's been there for um, uh, just a couple months. He joined after I did, you know, with it. So it's a pretty small group, um, you know, out of 450 you know, or so. Do you still have, like, this undocumented knowledge from the startup days that helps you today and people rely on you as a resource internally because you've just been through it all. Yeah. I, yeah. It's weird how that institutional knowledge can like be helpful in situations, whether it's like, well, why did we do this or how did we end up here? Those type of things. Um, I, I, I generally do have some answers for that from being through that time. Um, and it, it, it has helped me quite a bit. Like I'll use Downingtown for one second to go back. So David Schlesinger, um, smartest guy I've ever known, brilliant guy. Also probably the most detail worried individual you're ever going to meet. And he was involved in real estate, right? So he would put you through the grinder, not in a bad way, but every box. Hey, is, it, is there a tree that's blocking a facade? Are we on every single pylon? Can we get that tree in front of the facade removed? Can we move it? You know, have we checked into dot, 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 dot. You know, every deal had to go through this, you know, real granular approach, which I think set us up for success with those early stores we opened. But I, I take a lot from like that experience where when you're in a startup, you can't really afford to misfire. If you do, you got to have a minor misfire. If it's if it's major, you have twenty stores, but you all of a sudden you swing and miss on three or four, hard to absorb. So I, I take a lot of those early learnings of just how diligent you should be, attention to detail. Those things they really matter, and I, I think I learned that a lot just being in that environment at that time. It's a great point that the misfires can hurt you really bad, and you got to be you know really diligent on the due diligence and that's what can end up leading to the 
unbelievable growth that you guys have had. On, on the Downington, I'm going to go back there for one second before we wrap up. What was the, I don't know if you remember, but can you go back and tell me and like, what was the, the key point that got the founders over the hump that you could do Downingtown? You didn't have to be an extant. If you want it this way, I need you guys to be okay with Downingtown. Um, I, I actually would think it was one of the weekend visits we did. It was, it was just literally getting out there. I don't know how many times we've been there, but it was getting them out there on a weekend together and just seeing how busy and how active the, not necessarily the entire center, but just the section of the center that we were proposing to go into that kind of just, just did it. Cause you know, we're a kid's retailer and we're in a parking lot, like I was, I'm sure it had them in a Saturday or a Sunday, obviously. And you just would see the families, particularly the mothers with the kids at the time. And the mother is by is our number one customer at five below, either with kids or without. I mean, the, the parents are generally could be there. Grandparents shop us, but the, the mother is absolutely our, our number one. So I probably would say it was just being there boots in the ground on a weekend and just having them see the activity and seeing our customers in such close proximity to where we would be going. That just kind of, I, I, I think that was probably the last thing to say, hey, all right, we, we shouldn't be able to lose here. We've got our customers here. We, we can get them into the door. They're here. We, we can do it. And I think that probably was in my mind, what probably got them over the hump is just buying into by seeing it, you know, in person, the boots in the ground, sometimes you can't, can't replace that. Yeah. Can't replace that. Looking forward when we're all out in the field more and more. Uh, can't wait. <laughs> yes. The story is just incredible. Your story is incredible. Working at a startup, how your career's grown. It's truly tremendous. And we love working with you. Excited to see the continued success of five below. One last thing, you made, a, you made a good point that maybe some of the listeners need to hear. You mentioned you're a kid's retailer, and some people might equate it to a dollar store, but it's really about that you guys are a kid's retailer, correct? Yeah, yeah. So we, I mean, we enter new markets, um, you know, we're, even when we were a startup, you know, our, our name is Five Below. We're a value-oriented retailer. So yeah, and a lot of times we will face the question of, oh, I, I know exactly what you are. You're like a, you know, like a Dollar Tree or Family Dollar, whatever it might be. And the answer really is no, we're, we're, we're your kid's favorite store. They just don't know it yet. And we're really just a super store for kids and they can afford anything in the store. You give them five bucks, they're gonna walk away with what they want. You give them 10 bucks, they're gonna be kings, 20 bucks, you probably made their entire week to do it. So we really are pre-teen and teen-oriented retailer that just offers amazing value with the trendiest you know stuff we've got in the store. And like I said, our number one customer is, is the mother coming in and shopping, who's doing the shopping, Target and TJ Maxx and Ross and Ulta, all great first-class retailers that um, we share the same customer with them. Did, and something I never thought of, did you guys see a big lift when Toys R Us went out of business? Uh, there, there was some benefit. Yeah, I think, you know, obviously other retailers benefited as well. But um, yeah, because, you know, people knew we had toys, but when they lose the Toys R Us, absolutely, we got some benefit there with becoming more of a destination for that category. 
Uh, we already had it. We already had the value. Um, we, we benefited. We had vendor relationships, so we were already getting you know branded supplies in. And when they lost that key vendor um, or purchaser in Toys R Us, it did strengthen our vendor relationships as well to bring in even you know stuff that I was amazed that we were selling in the store, you know, five dollars or less. So it certainly you know helped when the I hate to see them go. Uh, certainly love that store, but it definitely, it, I think it introduced some customers to understand more what we offer. Yeah, I, I agree. I love going in and getting the big bags of candy that you can't find anywhere else. It's one of my favorites. Not on that plant-based diet that we talked about, but uh, <laughs> the, the candy's good. Uh, <laughs> all right, Zach, this has been great. I really appreciate it. I want to take us to the last part. We call it retail wisdom. I got three questions. You ready? I'm ready for them. Shoot. All right. One, what extinct retailer do you wish would come back from the dead? Oh, this is easy. Zany Brainy. Zany Brainy. I love it. That's a good one. Yeah, I got to admit, I got I, I, our, our co-founders, Dave, David Suster, founded Zany Brainy. So I admit that's an ode to him. Um, Tom Bellis, our other co-founder, was uh, CEO for a period of time. But I have a six-year-old and eight-year-old. It was a kid's store selling educational toys between like four to 15, games and toys and stuff like that. I'd be in there shopping out with my kids. It was still around. Totally agree. Question two, what is the last item you purchased in a store over $20? And not a case of beer? (laughs) Not a case of beer. Okay. Um, I, I, w- I think it, I'm looking at it right now, actually, I think it was this, this mini sit and stand laptop computer desk that I got at Costco. I think that was the last thing I got. That was probably like, I don't know, 60 days ago. Okay. Okay. All right. Last question. If Chris and Zach were shopping at target and I lost you, what aisle would I find you in? Outdoor furniture and grilling. Huh. Okay. Are you, are you an expert griller? I wouldn't say I'm an expert. I'm, I'm good at certain things, but I, I don't know. Whenever I'm there, I just tend to, I'm with my wife or kids. I just, somehow they'll lose me. <laughs> I'll just go into that section and, and look around. So and I, I'm griller in the works, got good skills. I wouldn't say I'm an expert though. You familiar with the green egg? I am. I, I've not used it. What's your, what's your take here? Uh, you need to check it out. You need you need to check it out. I'm going to leave it at that. You need to check it out. Do some homework on a green egg. All right. All right. I'll, I'll trust your opinion. Yeah. All right, Zach. This is great, man. I really appreciate it. Hey, Chris, I appreciate me having on. This is a great show. I love Thanks. having the, the retail podcast out there. All right. Well, I'll be in touch soon. This was great, man. Thanks for doing it. Hey, thanks, Chris. Take care. I'll catch up with you, man. Thank you for listening to Retail Retold. If you want to share a story about a retail real estate deal, that you were a part of on our show, please reach out to us at retailretold at dlcmgmt.com. This show highlights the stories behind the deals, all perspectives. So it doesn't matter if you are a retailer, broker, entrepreneur, architect, or an attorney. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Retail Retold so you don't miss out on next Thursday's episode.